Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 18, The Siege of Acre. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope we enjoyed our last episode on the Cairo Revolt, as well as Napoleon's trip to the Suez. Now, again, I know it was more of a bridge chapter to set us up for the remaining few episodes on Napoleon's campaign in the Middle East as, well, he heads towards gaining complete control of France at the end of 1799. But, hey, those episodes are important, too, and it's not like it was completely devoid of action, right? Now, I say Napoleon's campaign, of course, because, spoiler alert, while Napoleon will be leaving the Middle East in less than a year, the French campaign in Egypt would not end until nearly two years later, in September of 1801. But we'll have plenty of time to talk about the latter stages of the rest of the campaigns there, because, like many of those involving the French during the next few years, they all will be inextricably tied to Napoleon in some way or another. But that's still a little ways in the future because Napoleon is still in Egypt, and he was in the process of getting ready to face a major counteroffensive from the Ottomans, who, up to this point, have been largely absent from our episodes on the Middle East expedition, despite the fact that the French were launching the campaign in Ottoman territory. But that absence ends today, and to set the stage, I'd like to give a little background on the Ottomans and where they stood up to this point, ready to take on a French war machine, who up to now, had thoroughly thrashed their Mamluk allies and sent a shiver up the spine of the Ottoman Sultanate. I'm not going to give an entire history on the Ottoman Empire. We've kind of done bits and pieces of that over the course of the last 10 episodes when talking about their campaigns against Malta and Venice in the 16th and 17th centuries, respectively. But I do think a quick three-minute recap will give us a good foundation to set the stage for their upcoming battles with Napoleon and his French army. The Ottoman Empire, or more appropriately the Turkish Empire, was founded at the end of the 13th century, roughly given the year as 1299, although there is some debate around that, under the ruler of local Anatolian Beylik, which is similar to a European lord, Osman I, of which the Anglicanized name Ottoman is actually derived. So, fun fact. Now, much of the early history of the Ottoman Empire is shrouded in mystery, as is the life of Osman, as few contemporary sources exist into the modern day. But it is generally thought that Osman and his successors helped to unite the various Beyliks and renegade Byzantine subjects throughout Anatolia into a relatively united polity. Now, the subsequent century saw the Ottomans continue their consolidation of the various Turkish tribes in Anatolia and then expand their conquest into the Balkans. Now, their main objective here was to eliminate the Byzantine threat and conquer its capital, Constantinople, which they famously did on May 29th, 1453, which ended the Byzantine Empire, and to some historians who saw it as its last vestige, the Roman Empire. Now, this conquest was successful thanks in part to the reorganization of both the state apparatus and the military under Mehmed II, better known as Mehmed the Conqueror. 
Now, due to the political climate of the time, many of the Eastern Orthodox Christians in the former Byzantine Empire accepted Ottoman rule in exchange for relative autonomy rather than aligning themselves with other Christian states like the Italian Venice, as there had been numerous incursions between them in the past and, you know, Catholicism. Now, this decision and the numerous campaigns the Ottomans launched also likely contributed to the spread of the Black Death throughout Europe during the 13th and 14th centuries, and thus these campaigns are considered some of the most important events in human history. Now, after the fall of Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire entered a period of rapid expansion and began what many consider to be its golden age. In less than 100 years, the empire expanded from Anatolia and the Balkans to having conquered much of the Middle East and Upper Egypt, giving them not only extensive territory, but vital control of the Silk Road trade that passed through its borders, turning the Ottoman Empire into one of the richest empires in history. Now, much of this expansion was undertaken by Suleiman the Magnificent, who ruled from 1520 to 1566, stretching from modern-day central Hungary in the west to Iran in the east and just north of Sudan in the south. Now, the Ottoman influence brought them into bitter wars of religion and politics with the European powers of the day, and they fought protracted struggles against Spain, Portugal, and most famously, the Habsburg Austrians, who felt the Ottoman encroachment the most. But when Suleiman died, the Ottoman Empire began their transformation from a dominant, prosperous military and economic power into a stagnant and, well, eventually obsolete one. Now, there are a myriad of reasons for this, and their decline did continue up to where we are in our story. But inflation, near-constant warfare, factionalism, and an ever-changing bureaucracy at the head of the high court were some of the most important factors which led the Ottoman Empire to collapse. The Age of Discovery is also considered a watershed moment, as European trade now had an additional two continents, as well as navigable sea routes to India with which to trade goods, and thus the Ottoman economy no longer had a monopoly on valuable spices and commodities coming to and from Asia. But the Ottoman Empire also had to contend with a burgeoning Russian Empire, and both would contend for regional hegemony of the Caucasus and Balkans regions for the next four centuries. Indeed, Russia, as well as most of mainland Europe, considered their eternal struggle against the Ottomans as a religious war on the consciousness of mankind. Now, much of this would provoke the Ottomans into further expansion into Europe and the Middle East, further testing their military limits as they seemed to be in near constant state of war against their neighbors or rebelling subjects on the fringes of their empire throughout this entire period. But by the 17th century, the Ottomans' expansion would come to an abrupt halt. The momentous Battle of Vienna in 1683 proved devastating for the Ottomans' ambitions to expand further in Europe, and it became a turning point in the three-century struggle against the Habsburgs and Europe at large. Considered one of the most important events in European history, the Battle of Vienna changed the dynamic of the geopolitics on the European continent and laid the foundation for the expulsion of the Ottoman Turks from Hungary and, eventually, the Balkans. The Ottoman Empire thereafter began a slow but precipitous decline, which would last for the next 240 years until the empire's breakup four years after World War I in 1922. Which brings us to where we are in the story at present. 1799, 116 years after the calamitous Battle of Vienna. Now, while the Ottomans were in a pretty obvious decline and began to take on the moniker as the sick man of Europe, they still held on to a large population and a loyal military. Unfortunately, that military was, as we've mentioned multiple times now, in a state of rotting decay, and its structure, weaponry, and tactics were severely outdated. 
Now, Selim III, the current Ottoman sultan, was aware of this, and he did try to institute reforms. But he was repulsed by the religious leadership and the Janissary Corps, who were jealous of the fact that their privileged and esteemed positions as elite slave soldiers would be replaced by modern weaponry. Now, Selim would ultimately be proved correct and that their outdated tactics would cost them against the Europeans, but he would not live long enough to see these reforms. The Janissaries revolted in 1807 and killed him. His successor, Mahmud II, would finally eliminate the Janissary Corps in 1826 during the auspicious incident, as it's known, in which his army suppressed another Janissary uprising. He then had most of the Janissaries executed or imprisoned, a number somewhere in the range of 70 to 135,000 men. But we're getting off track here. For now, just know that Selim III is the current Ottoman Sultan, and with his outdated but determined army, they were now on the move to counter Napoleon and the French, as well as to set the stage for the next major part of Napoleon's Middle East campaign, his campaign in quote-unquote Syria. Again, in reality, he never would set foot inside of what is modern-day Syria, and most of the fighting took place in what we now consider Israel and Lebanon. Okay, so with all of that said, let's get into these campaigns, shall we? After Napoleon received confirmation that the Ottomans were now moving southwest to threaten the eastern French posts on the Egyptian frontier, Napoleon decided that in order to protect the ever-important right flank, he would need to make the first move. After General Deschet routed Murad Bey at the Battle of Samud in January of 1799, Napoleon was in complete control of all of Egypt and had little threats within the country itself. He wrote to the directory of his plans to begin his march on Syria with the specific goal of marching his men and capturing the strategic port towns of Acre, Haifa, and Jaffa, all, of course, in modern-day Israel, to deny the British access to the vital ports. Now, from here, he wanted to raise local resistance from the Lebanese and Syrian Christians against the Ottoman Turks, where he believed he would have sufficient manpower to march on either Constantinople or, crazily enough, India. And while he probably believed that he could undertake the mission, even if he had converted the majority of the Druze, Christians, and Levantine Jews against the Ottomans, most historians typically agree that he would have been stretched too thin to begin any major assault on either Constantinople and certainly on India. This is to say nothing of the fact of the major obstacles he would face in just reaching the Levant. Aside from the oncoming Ottoman force, of course, Napoleon had to contend with the brutal desert weather, and in the winter, the freezing conditions his men would face when making camp, and a growing list of enemies against the French state. Now, we've already talked about the majority of the European powers and the Ottoman Empire as enemies of revolutionary France, most of them certainly reacting to the fact that they feared similar uprisings in their own countries. But one major player that has been left out of the fighting to this point in the story was a country we mentioned briefly, but will become a major player over the course of the next 16 years, and that is, of course, the Russian Empire. Now, I'm not going to do an entire deep dive on the Russian Empire in this episode. They're going to be a big player a little bit further down the road. But suffice it to say, the Russians were growing ever more weary of the burgeoning revolutionary fervor that was starting to creep out of France. Tsar Paul I, son and successor to his more famous mother, Catherine II, or better known as Catherine the Great, detested the French Revolution, and when he came to power in 1796, the reign of terror was still fresh on the minds of most of the European nobility as the War of the First Coalition raged on throughout the continent. Now, At the start of the French Revolution, Catherine the Great was still on the throne, and she, ever the living embodiment of an enlightened despot, approached the French Revolution with a sort of 
cautious acceptance. Not exactly happy to see it happen, but if kept at arm's length, it was something that could at least be temporarily tolerated. The thought of seeing King Louis XVI executed disgusted her, sure, but she knew from a geopolitical perspective that the French fighting the rest of Europe could benefit Russia in both the short and long term, strengthening her position as a great power. Now, keeping much of the rumors of the French Revolution censored from the general population, many of them serfs, most of them illiterate anyway, she was able to play the European powers off of each other and use the French Revolution to Russia's advantage. Plus, those wars were so far away from the Russian frontier. They're no immediate threat to us, right? But when Catherine died, her son, Paul, took the throne. And with her death, so too went her famous diplomatic talents that were needed more than ever. Because Paul, well, let's just say he was not his mother. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, the dynamic between mother and son is fascinating and something I don't really have time to delve into too deeply today. But when Paul became Tsar, he was 42 years old and had long believed that he should have been sent to the throne far sooner than he did because Catherine was technically supposed to be a regent, not a monarch in her own right. But sometimes power is just a little too juicy to let go of. And when Paul came of age, Catherine decided to just keep herself on the throne. And thanks to the numerous relationships she had made during her time as regent, no one really questioned this. And so Paul became a bitter heir for about 20 years until he was finally able to assume power all to himself, right smack dab in the middle of the War of the First Coalition. But being the son of a great ruler does not necessarily make one a great ruler by bloodline alone, and Paul proved to be an unpopular and unfit czar at the worst possible time. His entire reign was spent dealing with the French Revolutionary Wars, and he proved inept at dealing with the growing foreign crisis. When he tried to mediate a truce between Austria and France, for example, in 1797, he was informed that Napoleon's Italian campaign led to the Treaty of Campo Formio, thus no longer needing his help in brokering a wider peace. Now, Campo Formio enraged Paul, mostly because it gave the French more control over vital Mediterranean ports, bringing them into closer contact with Russia and threatening regional stability. And Paul then decided that in order to help save Europe from this growing French threat, he needed to start committing troops to the cause and retaking much of the lost territory, especially in Italy. And what really helped spur this was Napoleon's seizure of Malta back in June of 1798. So we're all kind of tying this back together here. Back in 1797, Paul was made a protector of the knights. Many of the knights were located in heavily Catholic Poland, which was now a part of Russia. Well, at least parts of it. And when Napoleon kicked them out of Malta, remember, Paul felt that the time was now to act. Making alliances with the coalition forces and, incredibly, making common cause with their traditional enemy in the Ottoman Empire, Russia officially joined the coalition forces, and we now get the alliance for the war of the Second Coalition, which, if you weren't already aware, had officially started back up in November of 1798, but in reality had started when Napoleon's Mediterranean and Middle Eastern campaigns commenced in the late spring. So, hey, we're pretty much right already. Yeah, we're starting the war of the Second Coalition. So add Russia to the growing list of French enemies, which, as of January 1799, included Great Britain, Ottoman Turkey, Russia, the Holy Roman Empire, and most of Italy. Not that Napoleon was overly concerned with Russia at the moment. Sure, he was aware that they were planning to commit troops to the wider European cause, but there was no such inkling of an imminent Russian threat to his men in Egypt. 
And his main goal right now was to confront the encroaching Ottomans and eliminate them before he could turn his focus to the rest of Europe. Now, Napoleon's first objective was to inflict a blow to Jazar Pasha, who had recently captured the desert fort of El Arish, just 16 kilometers or around 10 miles from the Syria frontier with Egypt. If Napoleon could knock out this Ottoman force first, he could then turn back and crush the reported upcoming Ottoman amphibious landing in northern Egypt, something that Napoleon had long anticipated since at least the summer of 1798, but to this point had not yet materialized. Now, Napoleon's thorough trouncing of the Ottoman forces in Egypt likely prevented such an invasion in the immediate term, as the Ottomans feared that they would probably be walking into a slaughter. But the fight against Napoleon would not be put off any longer. Leaving Darchet in Upper Egypt to prepare for the amphibious assault, Marmont and Alexandria to patrol the main port, and General Charles de Gouaille in Cairo to maintain order in the capital, Napoleon set off with a force of about 13,000 men split in divisions under Generals Reynier with 2,100 men, Kleber with 2,300 men, Bonn with 2,500 men, Lannes with 2,900, and a cavalry division under Murat with 900, a cavalry and infantry brigade under Bessaret, a camel company, and an artillery division under Dumontin. Now, Napoleon's main assault did not come without detractors within his ranks. Many of his war cabinet, for example, believed that waiting for the Ottomans in Egypt would have proven much more beneficial as they would have had more men at their disposal. Campaigning in the desert's harsh environment against a determined and larger enemy force with only 13,000 men seemed, to them, destined to fail. But Napoleon overruled them. He needed to defeat Jazar Pasha and then double back to Egypt before the summer weather set in, essentially a three-month lightning campaign. Thus, on the move, they went. With Reynier's division in the vanguard, the French set off for Syria in early February. Crossing the Sinai Peninsula again, Napoleon would write of the harsh conditions. The marshy slog of the winter desert created difficult terrain from which to traverse with heavy artillery. Water, where it did exist, was often full of sand and mud. Food was scarce, and the men were forced to eat dogs, rats, and later, monkeys. Before they even encountered an Ottoman division, soldiers began to question the purpose of the mission, and rumors of desertion swelled through the ranks. Now, Rainier's division reached the fort of El Arish first, and began the process of digging trenches and batteries. When Napoleon arrived on the 17th with his weary men, the French began their bombardment of the small Ottoman garrison, which numbered around 2,000 men. Completely overmatched, they surrendered the fort on the 19th, with some of the soldiers even joining the French ranks. Now, Napoleon let the majority of the rest of the Ottoman army return to their homeland with their weapons, so long as they swore not to attack any French units on their return journey. The only unit he would ultimately pacify, however, was the small Mamluk contingent. Napoleon pulled zero punches when it came to his personal disdain for the Mamluks. The French lost about 400 men in the skirmish, while the Ottomans suffered anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000 casualties, including the men who defected the French side. Now, Despite Napoleon's leniency, the Ottomans didn't intend to honor their sworn word. They brought news of the French positions back with them and would begin fighting again soon in the closest city that they could help defend, Jaffa. With El Arish now refortified, Napoleon began his march towards Gaza, arriving on February 25th, and, in a common theme for the entirety of his campaign, chased the Mamluks out of the city, seizing numerous rations of food for his starving soldiers, large amounts of ammunition, and six additional cannons. When he reached Ramleh, 
Napoleon received word that the Ottomans he let retreat were planning to join the large 12,000-man force stationed inside of Jaffa, equipped with the invaluable weapon of intelligence. Napoleon, knowing the strategic value of the port city and that his entire mission depended on its capture, decided to take Jaffa. Concentrating his force in Ramla and refortifying his supplies, he began his march on Jaffa, and from March 3rd through the 7th, he laid siege to the city. Now, Jaffa, which is located in modern-day Tel Aviv, was surrounded by high walls and extensive fortifications that had been constructed over the centuries of Ottoman rule. Now, Jazar Pasha had the city defended by some of his most elite soldiers, including over 1,200 artillerymen. But the walls, especially those facing the open sea, were not impenetrable. Napoleon, knowing this, and also aware that he had a severe advantage in artillery, decided to give Jazar Pasha and his men the opportunity to surrender the city peacefully. After the Ottomans sent a small sortie to repel the advancing French, which Napoleon's men repulsed rather easily, Napoleon sent a messenger in turn to Jazar, asking for the city to lay down its arms, stating, quote, His heart is moved by the evil that will fall upon the whole city if it subjects itself to this assault. When Jazar received the messenger, he replied in kind, by decapitating him and displaying his severed head outside the city walls. Jazar does not surrender. It was also reported that the other messengers in the French contingent were murdered, castrated, and then also decapitated. When hearing of the news, Napoleon, boiling with rage, unleashed a fury on Jaffa that stunned even the hardest of battle-toughened soldiers. On March 5th, Napoleon had had enough of the siege and decided to launch an all-out assault on the city. By 5 p.m., thousands of angry French soldiers who, to this point, were starved, not just for food, but for battle as well. And they were able to destroy one of the city's towers, allowing the walls to be penetrated, and were sued inside the city, unleashing hell on its citizens. One savant later wrote, quote, The sights were terrible. The sound of shots, shrieks of women and fathers, piles of bodies, a daughter being raped on the cadaver of her mother, the smell of blood, the groans of the wounded, the shouts of the victors quarreling about loot. Despite some additional resistance by the soldiers inside, the city fell quickly. Napoleon's anger, though, it did not. In a rare form of unbridled barbarism for the man who had drilled his soldiers to respect all that was Middle Eastern customs and to heed the laws of war, Napoleon allowed two full days of plunder, slaughter, and rape without any disciplinary action. On March 9th and 10th, Thousands of Ottoman soldiers were taken to the beach about a mile south of the city and were massacred in cold blood, with Napoleon even writing to General Berthier that the French, quote, better take precautions that none of them escape. Now, Napoleon justified his actions by saying that he wanted to scare the Syrians generally, and Chazar specifically, into submission. Though, in the coming years, it would become clear that the brutal reprisals he allowed under his command had the opposite effect. They galvanized a heterogeneous Ottoman population into a single cause, defeat the French. Indeed, one French quartermaster would later write of the experience, quote, This example will teach our enemies not to trust the French, and sooner or later, the blood of these 3,000 victims will soon revisit us. And how prophetic, because Napoleon also made the critical error of letting numerous civilians leave the city unharmed, with the intention of them delivering word of his leniency to the average citizen. But, unsurprisingly, they just delivered word of his brutality, and it would further inspire French hatred throughout the Levant. Interestingly, though, there was some karma that would come down on the French. 
During all of their raping and pillaging of Jaffa, the poor sanitation and close quarters in the city became a breeding ground for disease, and numerous French soldiers caught plague, slowing their advance and allowing the Ottomans to make up critical ground while the French recuperated. Sometimes, as they say, God plays in the game. According to some sources, Napoleon visited many of the plague victims, most being quarantined in the Armenian monastery in Jaffa, and even held them, lifting their morale. Other sources, though, state that he never visited them, fearful of catching the disease and that the images of him visiting sick soldiers were made up by propagandists during his empire. Regardless, though, one of the most famous Napoleonic paintings would come from the plague infestation, the Napoleon visiting plague victims of Jaffa which is the cover art for this week's episode, showing Napoleon touching a plague victim while others lay in suffering around him. But his goodwill and piety for the sick notwithstanding, Napoleon had to keep moving. He had to keep moving north to Acre, and he and his men set off from Jaffa on March 14th because awaiting them there was a large Ottoman force supported by an arriving British fleet led by Commodore Sir Sidney Smith. So, Let's take a minute and talk about one of Britain's lesser-known naval heroes, Sir Sidney Smith. Admiral Sir William Sidney Smith was born in 1764 in Westminster, London, to a military and naval family with connections to the powerful Pitt family. So he was just over five years older than Napoleon Bonaparte. He joined the Royal Navy in 1777 at the age of 13 and would see action in the American Revolutionary War, including fighting in the Battle of the Chesapeake during the Siege of Yorktown. He would later see action as a young officer during the early days of the French Revolutionary Wars, including being tasked with destroying as many ships as possible during the Siege of Toulon, led, as we all know, by a young Napoleon. But Smith, despite his efforts, was unable to inflict as much damage as the British would have liked, and he was actually blamed by many of the top admiralty, including Admiral Nelson, for the failure to destroy any of the French fleet. Now from there, he specialized in assisting French emigres escape France seeking refuge in England, as well as disrupting French shipping on the Channel coasts. But unfortunately, he was captured in 1796 and spent two years in the Temple Prison in Paris. But he would ultimately escape, thanks in part to royalists, who pretended to transfer him to another prison. After returning to London in May of 1798, Smith recuperated before receiving orders to assist the British Mediterranean fleet after their victory at the Battle of the Nile. Now, Smith was put under command of Lord St. Vincent, as we know him, Admiral John Jervis, who Horatio Nelson always accused of stealing his glory from the Battle of St. Vincent. Now, St. Vincent gave Smith orders as Commodore to take British ships under his command as needed in the Levant to help assist in defeating the French, and this is what he would do. Smith would gain a reputation as a man who acted on his own initiative, something which likely damaged his long-term legacy and memory among modern Britons, and is also likely why he is not remembered in the same way Nelson is. But make no mistake about it, Smith was one of the most painful thorns that Napoleon would have to deal with throughout his career. Indeed, Napoleon once remarked later in life that, quote, that man, referring to Smith, made me miss my destiny. So, let's find out how Admiral Sir William Sidney Smith helped Napoleon miss out on his Alexandrian destiny of conquering the Middle East during the fateful siege of Acre. Backing up a bit, like 600 years or so, Acre was of critical strategic importance to anyone trying to reach Syria from Egypt. Sitting along a natural harbor at the extremity of Haifa Bay on the Mediterranean's Levantine Sea, the city essentially cut the Levant's coast into two, meaning that controlling it meant controlling any exchange between the two main hubs of the Ottoman Empire outside of Turkey, Syria and Egypt. 
Now, Acre had been captured in 1104 by Crusader King Baldwin I of Jerusalem, and he ordered a large wall built around the city, some of them even as thick as eight feet. Now, the general neglect over the centuries, of course, left many of these walls vulnerable at the end of the 18th century, but they were still formidable, and their surrounding deep moat created issues for any army attempting to seize the port from the landward side. At the time of the siege, Acre was defended by about 4,000 Ottoman troops, made up mainly of Afghans, Albanians, and Moors under Jazar Pasha's command. Now, supporting them were two British ships of the line, the HMS Tigre and Theseus, under the command of Smith and French royalist emigre Antoine Le Percade de Philippeau, and about 200 British sailors. Now, the British engineers constructed additional defenses along the walls, including building ramps to slide cannons up to the top of the fortress, something which had been impossible at Jaffa due to the weakness of the walls there. This difference proved decisive, as it allowed additional firepower to be used on the French invaders. Napoleon was so confident that the city would quickly capitulate and that he would be able to march into Jerusalem in less than two weeks. But Jazar Pasha's men, many of them led by his Jewish chief of staff, Chaim Fari, refused to surrender to the final man, withstanding a siege of two months and inflicting one of the worst losses suffered by Napoleon in his entire career. Here's how it happened. When the French arrived at Acre, Napoleon again overconfident and believing the city would fall quickly, attempted to begin the siege by using only their infantry. He believed that with the arrival of his heavier guns via the sea, he would be able to capture the city by attacking on two fronts. But Commodore Smith and Felipeau had other ideas. Just days before Napoleon was set to launch his assault, he watched in horror from the hills of Haifa as his flotilla of nine vessels under the command of Pierre-Jean Stendelet rounded the promontory of Mount Carmel straight into the awaiting British ships of Tigre and Theseus. Six of his ships were captured, while the other three hightailed it back to France, but the weapons aboard the six captured ships would be turned against Napoleon in the coming weeks. Napoleon, though, still believed the sheer manpower and light artillery he had would be enough to breach through the walls and defeat Jazar. He ordered his troops to begin building fortifications and trenches about 300 yards away from the city proper. But the swampy terrain around Acre proved an ideal breeding ground for more disease, and many of his men suffered from malaria before they even had time to launch their main assault. And Napoleon, in hindsight, could have easily turned back to Jaffa or even Egypt and still maintained a considerable presence in the Levant and could have lived to fight another day. Jazar, even with his highly motivated troops, would not have had the manpower to mount such a serious offensive against Napoleon. But Napoleon knew that the larger Ottoman army was still awaiting him in Damascus, and that the entire reason for this campaign was to face them and neutralize them. So he decided to stay at Acre and try and take it. It would be a decision he would regret for the rest of his life. Over the next two months, the French would launch about 12 total assaults on Acre, all the while fending off attempted raids by local Turkish, Arab, and Mamluk tribesmen in alliance with the Ottomans and the British. Napoleon's forces were so thin on ammunition after just a few weeks that he had to pay many of his soldiers to go and capture unexploded cannonballs to be repurposed by French artillery. The two-month siege became a struggle for control of the city, with hardened resistance from both sides. But Jazar knew he needed to only hold out for the approaching Ottoman reinforcements from Damascus, as once they arrived, they would be able to envelop and crush the French army. Now, when Napoleon heard rumors of the approaching Ottomans, he sent dispatches to help thwart the attempts. He sent Murat to capture Safed and Junot to take Nazareth, accompanied by Clébert. While in Nazareth, Clébert had heard that a large Ottoman force was encamped at nearby Mount Tabor. 
Now, Clavea, whose relationship with Napoleon at this point was frosty at best, saw an opportunity to make a name for himself and wrote to Napoleon of his intentions to attack the encamped army. It would prove to be one of the most decisive engagements of the Syrian campaign. Now, Clavea's attack plan was simple. March with just shy of 3,000 soldiers across the Jezreel Valley, arrive at the Ottoman camp with the cover of darkness, and launch an ambush while they slept and watered their camels. Pretty easy, right? Well, unfortunately, Clever badly underestimated the distance the march required, and by 6 a.m. on April 16th, he was still not at Mount Tabor, but he was in clear view of the Ottoman forces across the open valley. He was also aware that he would be outmanned, but it would not be apparent until the sun rose that he would know just how outmanned he really was. 2,500 Frenchmen against an Ottoman force of over 25,000. He was outnumbered 10 to 1. Now, Clever at this point, had few options. Had he retreated, the Ottomans would have likely routed the French, picking them off and annihilating the small contingent. Had he advanced, he would have been enveloped and his men, already exhausted from the long march, would have faced stifling heat and little water to help aid in their defense. And so Clebea did the only thing he could do, settle into two square formations, hope to fend off the technologically inferior forces as best he could, and hope that nightfall came quickly so that they could retreat in some capacity. Now the formations proved effective. The soldiers were able to hold their ground and slowly pushed up the slopes of the nearby Mount Hamare which helped to offset the cavalry threat posed by the Ottomans. By noon, though, fatigue, mounting losses, and dangerously low ammunition began to take their toll. Clebea ordered the two formations to form into a single square, which was a dangerous maneuver as it left both sides from each formation vulnerable to penetration. The maneuver was successful, though. But even still, at this point in the battle, it was apparent to both the Ottomans and the French that a miracle was needed to save them from complete annihilation. Now, sometimes, though, miracles are nothing less than a matter of the simplest of errors. The Ottoman general, Abdullah Pasha al-Azim, the governor of Damascus, made a critical mistake of not sending out scouts over the surrounding valley to watch out for relief attempts by nearby French units. Had he done so, his scouts likely would have found a small French relief force approaching the battle. A small French relief force led by none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. You see, that morning, Clebert's message finally reached Napoleon of his intentions. Now, Napoleon, knowing that the Ottoman army would surely outnumber Clebert's, decided to take over General Bonn's division and marched on Nazareth in an effort to help him. Just as Clebert's men were about to be ordered into an every-man-for-himself-style retreat, some of the soldiers reported seeing French bayonets in the distance. Now, when Clebert, by this point also wounded, attempted to scout the area with his spyglass, he saw nothing. But as he turned around, Napoleon's men, who, when Clebert looked, had been hidden in the tall grass, suddenly appeared. His army was so well hidden that not even the enemy Ottomans saw them until it was too late. Napoleon, in a dream scenario for any commander, let alone one of the greatest in history, appeared at the Ottoman rear. Nestled in between the Ottomans and their camp, Napoleon sent a small contingent of about 300 soldiers to the camp to set fire to the tents and steal any supplies that they could carry. Napoleon then put the rest of the men into squares to push the Ottomans back, supporting them with light artillery. He then ordered his squares to march out, spreading the Ottomans thin and neutralizing the oncoming cavalry relief that they were anticipating. Now, this allowed the Ottomans to see the destruction of the camps, making them feel cut off, and they were quickly thrown into a panic. Clever, now seeing his chance, 
ordered his men to charge, and the Ottoman retreat turned into a rout. And while the Ottoman cavalry was able to retreat south safely, their infantry headed towards the Jordan River, which, thanks to recent rains, had turned into a giant quagmire. As a result, the French were able to inflict thousands of more casualties on the Ottomans. The French, incredibly, suffered only two deaths and around 60 wounded. The Ottomans suffered over 6,000 dead and another 500 captured. It was a staggering defeat for the Ottomans and ruined their chances of reconquering Egypt. For Napoleon, it was a relieving victory, giving his men confidence as they continued their siege of Acre to the west. But that's all the Battle of Mount Tabor ended up being. In a month's time, the French would be the ones heading back to Egypt, unable to achieve the decisive victory that they needed in Acre to move into Syria. But Napoleon wasn't aware of that yet. And that night, he slept at a convent in Nazareth, where he was shown the supposed bedside where the Virgin Mary had been visited by the Archangel Gabriel to deliver the news that she would carry Jesus Christ in her womb as the Son of God. The next day, he revisited the battlefield to soak in one last breath of victory before heading to Acre. It had to have felt fitting for Napoleon, a self-believing man of providence, that he was in Nazareth, the home of God's only son. But unlike Jesus Christ or Alexander the Great before him, providence was not to be bestowed upon Napoleon in the Levant. And next week, we'll finish up Napoleon's tenure in the Middle East and go back to France, as the political situation there becomes dire once again, leaving the door open for a certain someone to seize control in the dying days of the first French Republic.